0: Good morning, everybody. And I start with my usual opening words of, can anybody hear me? Uh, You can hear me out here in the hall. I really hope you can hear me at home. It's great to be back here before you preaching from Romans. We're in Romans chapter 14 today. We're doing the whole chapter, which is fairly long. So uh, I know Sam's going to bring it up on the screen as I read it in a minute. And you may like to have it to hand at home uh, if you want to make reference to it while I speak. But I'm just going to admit to a little secret or uh, I don't want to call it a sin but um, as we were worshipping I was singing I have to say uh, behind my mask there are about four people in the hall and I couldn't resist singing and as I was singing it's the first time I've sung like that for months and um, it just makes me realize how much we miss it and how much damage is being done to us really by these lockdown restrictions we know they're there for a reason, but we do pray for our government and for those who are responsible for making policy that we will be allowed to meet together again soon in larger numbers and to be able to sing, to be able to sing. So let's hope and pray for that sooner rather than later. As I said, we're in Romans chapter 14, we're starting in verse 1. I did actually preach on Romans 15 in September, or from a part of it, someone else has got that next week, but it does relate to what I said then as to what I'm going to say today. So, you ready, Sam, with the words? Fantastic. This is Paul writing to the church in Rome. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats." The one who eats, eats in honour of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honour of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Amen. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written in the book of Isaiah, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother or sister is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Well, that's quite a lot of words which Paul writes to this church, and it's a fairly big chunk of a passage for me to deal with today. But it is, as I hope you heard when I read it, actually relatively simple. There are some relatively simple instructions coming from Paul here. He's dealing with a knotty, practical problem in the church in Rome. How do we get on when we disagree with one another? How do we get on when we disagree with each other? And the answer he gives is rather simple. But as I said when I was preaching on Romans 15, not that easy to implement. Paul talks about two groups of people throughout this passage, the weak in faith and the strong in faith. And he's very open about this, surprisingly open, I think. He doesn't tone his language down at all. He doesn't make any attempt at saying everyone's faith is equal. He doesn't shy away from the reality of the difference that exists. And he doesn't shy away from taking a side either, as it were. Which is remarkable, I think. If I were to stand here today and take a similar tack and say, some of you are weak in faith and some of you are strong in faith, and I think this is the strong side, I would probably cause a fair amount of offence and alienate quite a few people by naming it in that way. But God, through Paul, is not afraid To name faith as it is. There are the strong in faith. And in this passage, that's those who eat anything. They treat all days as equal. They're not saying one day, like the Sunday or the Sabbath, is any more special than another day. Or a festival is any more special than any other day. They attach no importance to food or Sabbaths or festivals. Every day is the same and you can eat and drink whatever you like. Paul labels that the strong in faith. And then there are the weak in faith. And conversely, they attach great importance to what you eat, to what you drink, which days you observe, to the calendar which they live. The strong are indifferent to these things and the weak attach great importance to them. And this disagreement in this one church is causing great division. Now, what we eat and what we drink and what days we celebrate and what days we don't celebrate in our day and age are not great matters of contemporary controversy. We, in general, don't care that much. It does rear its head every so often, but in general, it's not that big a deal. 2,000 years ago, though, when Paul was writing this, thereabouts, it mattered a great deal. These were the governing things that showed your identity in society. We have to understand that back then... The only people in in that society, the only people not sacrificing animals and not celebrating one day as more important than another and not making drink offerings were the Christians. And the Christians hadn't been around for very long, only a couple of decades The Jews were doing it. We are familiar with that, the sacrificial system and the temple, so forth, and their very strict calendar of Sabbaths and festivals. But the Romans were doing it too, and the Greeks were doing it, and you find that written about in other letters. They go into the temples. They're sacrificing food to idols, to their gods. They have a very important calendar that they follow. This was critical in showing who you belong to, which god you were serving, which part of society you belong to. And so not only was this new Christian religion, as it were, completely strange, because it said that sacrifice and the religious calendar weren't very important, they were now matters of indifference. It made it a very strange experience to join a church. Imagine joining a church where for all of your life it's been governed by these things. What you eat, what you drink, what you do with that food and drink. What you do with your calendar, what you do on certain days, whether you were Gentile or Jew, that was what governed your life. And all of a sudden, you're brought into this community where these things you're told are matters of indifference now. It's not that important anymore. All of those rituals and practices no longer have any significance. And so you can see why this problem arises in the church in Rome. Because in general, in the world in general, for a large fraction of people, change is difficult. And change is a challenge, and people don't like it. Culture can be hard to change, and when it does change, disagreement and dispute arises, and so does, therefore, division. And Paul's basic instruction, which is what I was also preaching back in September on the next chapter, God's basic instruction is this, do not judge one another as you go through this change. The strong should not judge the weak, and the weak should not judge the strong. Both of you are honouring God and giving thanks to God in your different ways according to the level of faith that you have. And the level of faith that you have is not as important as you might think it is. So don't get upset or offended if you are labelled weak in faith. It's no big deal. Why? And this is then when Paul goes to the crux of the matter. Why? Because you are not your own. You are not the Master. You are not the Lord. It does not revolve around you. It does not revolve around me, about what you think, about what I think, but it revolves around the Lord of all to whom we all answer for ourselves. It revolves around the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we all live, as Paul wrote, and we all die. Whether weak or strong in faith, and in both life and death, you do not belong to yourself, but you belong to Christ. You belong to him. You belong to him who is the Lord of life, your Lord while you live, since he alone is the giver of life. Life comes from nowhere other than Jesus. But he is also the Lord over death, since he is the conqueror of death. He died and lived again, as Paul wrote. So whether weak or strong, alive or dead, you are Christ's. That's the important thing. You're not anyone else's. We had the sadness of Dave Fullerton's funeral 10 days ago. And it is sad. But it is important to remember and to declare that Christ is still his Lord. As Jesus died and lives again, so Dave also continues to live. And Christ is his master. We will all stand before Christ to give an account. And it is before him whom we stand or fall. And Paul gloriously writes this. He says, we will stand. You will stand because it is the Lord Jesus which upholds you. It is the Lord who is able to make you stand. We will not fall because we are not saved by the measure of our faith, whether it is weak or whether it is strong. Weak or strong does not save you. Jesus saves you. That's why we sung that song just now, Ain't No Grave, going to hold my body down. I'd not heard that song before. I'm going to go home and learn it on my guitar because I think it was great. I really enjoyed singing that song. There isn't any, I can't bring myself to say ain't in normal prose, but there isn't any grave that's going to hold me down because Jesus is the one who makes me stand before him. I don't deserve to stand. I have no merit to stand on of myself. Jesus Saves. And whether I find myself being weak in faith or strong in faith, that fact remains. There ain't no grave going to hold my body down. The gospel, which is what we have just preached, therefore, there in one aspect of it, lies at the very center of this. And all of this practical teaching, because I'm going to say some difficult things in a minute. And we have to hold everything around this central fact that you and I are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And it doesn't matter whether we find ourselves on the weak or the strong side. Don't get offended by it. Jesus is the one who is upholding you. That, in a way, is sometimes I think an aspect of the gospel which we forget in our current age, where everything's about self-fulfillment, not missing out. You only live once. All this sort of stuff, and we can we can easily mould our gospel to fit that. Being a Christian means you'll live to your full potential, and we wander away from the core, which is Christ has defeated death. He's died and risen again, and so you will too, and I will as well. Then we will enter life into all its fullness. It's that long-range view of what Jesus has done in the past and which is coming again in the future. My sins are forgiven, and I can stand and give an account, and it doesn't matter how badly I have fallen, Christ will make me stand. And so as I said, the gospel therefore lies at the very centre of this, and that's why in verse 13... Paul has the word therefore. The word therefore is always huge. He's just given this explanation of what Jesus has done. And then he says, therefore, if God is the judge and not you and not me, then why do we judge one another? It's not our business in these matters. And he says, rather than focusing on judgment, focus on this instead. Focus on not putting any hindrance or stumbling block in the way of a fellow Christian. Otherwise, you are at risk of destroying God's work. Don't worry about other people. Think about yourself in that regard first. And that's the basic structure of what Paul is commanding the church to do. Do not judge one another. So now we come to some applications for us. First, this has obvious implications for church unity, since it is exactly that which Paul is tackling here in the church in Rome, a divided church. And here I have to make a a caveat or a modification to what I have just said. Because we don't read Scripture passage by passage in isolation. We instead read Scripture passage by passage in the context of the book in which it was written and within the context of the Bible as a whole. And it is clear if you read your New Testament, if you read Paul elsewhere, if you read the Bible as a whole, that there are some matters on which we are to judge one another and which there has to be some judgment. That's throughout all of the uh, New Testament letters. It's in Jesus' teaching. You read a letter like 1 Corinthians and Paul says there, this particular thing has happened in the church. It must not happen and you need to put these two people out of the church until they repent. Sometimes judgment is called for. The church and the kingdom of God is not a free-for-all. And if anyone thinks that, then they need to read their Bible a bit more carefully. So then the question is, where does this boundary lie between matters on which we are meant to judge over and matters in which we are not meant to judge over and this of course is one of the great questions that the church has wrestled with throughout its history and has done through the ages but the bible in many ways is pretty clear which is why we still are here today 2,000 years later calling ourselves orthodox christians the best way i've heard of putting it is like this and i can't remember if i've said this before in a sermon so forgive me if i'm repeating myself but it probably bears repeating Some things we do and some things we believe can be described as being written in blood, metaphorically speaking. Written in blood. Some doctrines, if you like. Some of them we are called to die for if necessary. We are called to defend them with our own bodies, as people have done, and they are doing now right up until this present day. They are dying in defense of these things. These fundamental orthodox beliefs. Jesus is Lord. It's a fundamental doctrine of the church and to recant on that is to fall away and we should be prepared to de- defend and to die in defense of that declaration that Jesus is lord Jesus is god the trinity is the understanding of god which he has given us the father the son and the holy spirit three in one the virgin birth the fact that god created the universe creation from nothing the fact that christ died for our sins and was raised bodily from the dead and is alive today and is coming back again. The communion of saints and baptism into the people of God. These and others, my list there is not exhaustive by any means, are absolutes for which we should be prepared to die. They are clearly and unambiguously articulated throughout Scripture and they are affirmed universally as orthodox Christian belief, which is why they're summarised in places like the Apostles' Creed. From very early on. They're non-negotiable. So as, they were, as it were, they are written in blood. Some things we do and believe, though, can be described as being written in ink. Ink is not easily erased, but it's not the same as blood. In the church in Rome back then, what you ate, what you drank, what days you celebrated, how you treated the calendar, was a matter of great importance to some people. It was formulative for their identity. And today, people have similarly very strong opinions on certain Christian doctrines that we may or may not hold, on the nature of Israel today, for example, whether God created the world in six twenty-four 24-hour periods or not, whether babies can be baptised, how churches should be governed, the relationship between church and state, and lots of other matters. These things are important. They're important. And they form the basis, for example, of denominations. Churches have separated over them. And that includes us, all churches, whether they think they do or not, belong to a denomination of one form or another, whether de facto or de jure. It's, it's just a, a fact of, of our existence. These are the things which commonly divide us from other churches in the area. And I'm not denying that these things are important. These things are important. And they're not easily changed. But I wouldn't die for them. I'm not going to die for them. And I wouldn't recommend you do either. But... They are written in ink, not in blood. And some things are written in pencil, because you can rub that out and write it down again rather easily. They're a matter of preference, if you like. The music style, how or whether we do small groups, the songs we sing, the format of our preaching, whether I should be shorter or longer, the length of our service, the design of our building, what we wear. Some people think it's important what I should be wearing right now as the preacher. These things are insignificant Really, they can be easily changed. They are written in pencil. Paul, in this part of the letter that he's writing to the Roman church, is talking about things written in ink, not blood. If someone comes into your church preaching that Jesus is just a man or was just a man or an angel, then you should not welcome him. That's written very clearly in the New Testament. You can find it, for example, in the letters of John. But within the orthodox community, those of us who accept those things written in blood, for the stuff that's written in ink, it's important enough that it may form our identity. That Paul's time was reflected in what you ate and drank and how you treated the calendar. God's expectation and God's design is that for these matters, we are held together nevertheless as a single community, not that we fracture into groups or denominations. And again, it's so stark to me as you read this from Paul, that Paul is addressing one church. and He's saying to one section of the church, you're strong in faith. And he's saying to another section of the church, you're weak in faith. And you must hold these two things together. You have only one Lord, one Christ Jesus. You're all held together by being his. Don't destroy what God has made and is making by hanging on to your doctrines written in ink as if they were written in blood. And this is very hard for us to hear in our present day and age, possibly more so than it ever has been before, because our culture has reached an apogee, a peak of individualism and consumerism, which was unimaginable 2,000 years ago. We're so used to it, we're so used to a right of choice that we, we, we really struggle to question it. It's part of the air, the cultural air that we breathe, the water in which we swim. If I was to throw out a question like, Christians shouldn't choose which church they belong to, almost no one would believe me, because the right to choose is so deeply culturally ingrained into us. And yet it is deeply foreign to the vast majority of people that have lived throughout history and the rest of the world. And so this cultural air that we breathe right now, where we take many things unexamined and without questioning, makes Paul's implicit command here that the church stay together despite deeply held differences makes it sound very foreign to us. Because from our perspective, we get to pick and choose. Because we think that's right. And that's an assumption which, as the church comes under increasing pressure, I believe, in the years that are coming ahead, we need to re-examine. Because there are more important things at stake. And that's why I'm personally very much in favour of us exploring unity with Beulah Family Church. I don't know if it will actually be possible. Because people are people and the last 2,000 years shows we don't have a fantastic track record of of doing what God actually commanded us to do. And that's okay, as far as it is in as far as it goes, because the letters of the New Testament are full of this mixture of idealism. We aim high. The standard is set high. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, Peter tells us. We aim high, but the New Testament mixes that with its realism of knowing that we fail to reach those ideals. And Jesus, as we just read, is the one who upholds us through that. Whether we find ourselves strong or weak in faith, he is the one who is able to make us stand because our failure is not condemnation. But it is our spur to aim high and to aim and to try as hard as we are able to to reach for what God has for us. So that is why we are exploring unity with full sincerity and energy but not naive to the challenges which lie ahead. So that's the first application and the longest one, you'll be glad to hear. It challenges our unity or lack of. The second is this. Our faith will vary from person to person. and Do not judge when it comes to matters written in ink or pencil. An example. Alcohol is still in some areas and close to home here an alcohol, uh, a divisive issue in the Christian community. This church has a position, I've preached it before, we implement it in the way we do communion. But there is no value judgment in that. In 2006, Abby and I moved to China and when we went there, it was part of the condition of joining the team that we would not drink alcohol either privately or publicly in the early years when we were there because there were cultural considerations both in terms of the Chinese culture that we were living in and in terms of people from other nationalities on our team who found that difficult and a struggle. And as Paul said here, better to abstain and give that up for the sake of them than to stand on your right to do what you think is right, and even what you know is right, and damage those relationships. And so we were happy to do that. If asked, I would give my opinion, I would state my opinion and stand by it. But it's not to be forced on anyone, because my freedom to drink what I want is way less important than the effect it may have on someone else who sees that matter differently. And so the church is, therefore, when it comes to this ink and pencil stuff, meant to be very diverse. It's meant to be heterogeneous, very varied. We're meant to be disagreeing about all of these things, about the worship and the preach and the contributions and the way we do this and the way we do that, and challenging practices that we have. We're meant to be disagreeing on all of these opinions because it's in... There's such value in having a multiplicity of these opinions and then yet demonstrating to a watching world that we can still live together despite these disagreements and differences. The church is meant to be a community that thrives when there is disagreement about eating and drinking and Sabbath and so on because it's ultimately not about that. Paul says "This kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. It is about peace, righteousness and joy in the Holy Spirit. We are meant to compromise on these things and to keep the faith that we may have in them and be very strong in, keep that between ourselves and God. Paul Barrett uh, always taught us one of his favourite straplines was that relationships are more important than doctrine. And I struggle with straplines because often they oversimplify things that are a little bit more complicated than they make out to be. But there is an important nugget of truth that lies in that, which is very important to us. Which matters more? getting your way on matters of ink and pencil or maintaining your relationship with your brother and sister. And that's why it is sad when people leave over things written in pencil or ink because it's not just that we're depleted numerically, that's not the most significant thing, but we are depleted spiritually and the resulting homogeneity as we become more and more just the same weakens us. So that was the second thing. Thirdly, and briefly, do not gossip. This doesn't come up directly in the passage, but I need to address it because it has become a bit of an acute problem for our church. Gossip is a form of judgment. It's passing on information to someone else to paint another person in a negative light. And when Paul says here, do not judge one another, it includes this. It's divisive because it attempts to get people onto a side. And gossip is happening in the church now, and it is killing us. Often it happens because people think they are right about something, and someone else is wrong. And I just say, note Paul's attitude in this passage. He knows he's right about the food, but it's not important. He will give that up for the sake of the relationship. Our health as a community is directly related to how thick-skinned we are in love. How secure we are in the fact that Christ will make us stand. To do what Paul says here, and to decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of another brother or sister, that takes a thick skin of love and a deep security in Christ. Because on a lot of these things, we have a choice about whether we're offended or not. And a lot of the time we have a choice about whether we're hurt or not. And whether you're right or not, whether I'm right or not, is not very important compared to what's at stake in terms of the whole. I'm reminded at this stage of a quote attributed to David Pawson, who was a great Baptist preacher, died in May earlier this year. His reputation was being trashed. People were speaking negatively, badly about him. He heard of this uh, Gossip and uh, people talking behind his back. And as the Psalms encourage us to do, he went to God and he made his complaint. God, they're saying this about me. They're saying that about me. And he heard God say back to him, would you rather they knew the truth? And I first heard that about 10 or 11 years ago. And I was finding myself in a situation where I had been hurt. And I thought I was right and blah, blah, blah. And that really spoke powerfully to me. Because the truth is a lot worse than what I present to people, in all honesty. There was a Charles Spurgeon quote that said basically the same thing on Facebook this week. I wish I'd written it down, but um, it's something worth considering. So that was the third. Do not gossip. Finally, live by your faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It's a bit of a bombshell that Paul throws in at the end of that chapter. We don't give it much thought very often. And uh, I could do a whole sermon just on that verse. Live by your faith convictions, but do not lay them upon other people in these matters. Do not judge other people by them. Keep them between you and God. The very next verse, Romans chapter 15, verse 1, which I did read in September, and I don't know who's preaching next week, but they'll get to cover it, says this. Bear in mind, so he's just said, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation, it's a strong word, to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Paul makes it clear in chapter 14 this works both ways. The weak and the strong are both responsible for their actions. Weak does not mean unable. It doesn't mean incapable. It's no reflection on character. It's no reflection on value or identity. It's weak in faith. And the weak and the strong in faith are to put the interest of the other first, to build our neighbour in the faith up. What sort of community do we want to be? I want to be part of a community which Paul is describing here, one which through all of its troubles and divisions and disagreements hangs together around that fact that Christ died and lives again and will uphold us before him, makes us brothers and sisters. I want to be part of that community. One of the best descriptions, short descriptions I've seen of this was from C.S. Lewis. And you have to use your imagination to make this connection. But in The Horse and His Boy, one of the Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis writes this as a description of a boy seeing the Narnians in Tashban, a foreign city, for the first time. And he writes this, Their tunics were of fine, bright, hardy colours, woodland green or sunshine yellow or fresh blue. Instead of turbans, they wore steel or silver caps, some of them set with jewels and one with little wings on each side of it. A few were bareheaded. Their swords at their sides were long and straight, not curved like Calamine scimitars. And instead of being grave and mysterious like most Calamines, they walked with a swing and let their arms and shoulders go free and chatted and laughed. One was whistling. You could see that they were ready to be friends with anyone who was friendly and didn't give a fig for anyone who wasn't. Shasta thought he had never seen anything so lovely in his life. You could see that they were ready to be friends with anyone who was friendly and didn't give a fig for anyone who wasn't. Shasta thought he'd never seen anything so lovely in his life. And that's what we're called to be, to walk with a swing in our step and relaxed shoulders, being friendly to whoever is friendly to us and letting whoever isn't friendly just bounce off and carrying on in that peace and joy and righteousness of the Holy Spirit regardless. It's not a community which is free from trouble or difference, but a community secure enough in Christ that pettiness, gossip, judgment and dispute are weathered with cheerfulness and subsumed into that peace, righteousness and joy. Not a community fueled by suspicion and fear, but by grace, but by extending the benefit of the doubt, where we each put our own house in order before worrying about anyone else and where we take things at face value. Our culture today is one of fake news, of spin, of distrust of authority, of rising conspiracy theories. It's of the long march through the institutions of Marxism. It's a a fear of violence. There is very little forgiveness in society today. It has disappeared without us really noticing. Twitter is a bloodbath. And once you've said something there, you can never take it back. People have written very good books and articles on this. We've sung about shame and what shame robs us of. There's a lot of shaming. On social media. And once it's done, it cannot be undone. Such is our world today. And we are called to be different. Now is the time for us to heed the words of the New Testament of Paul, of Jesus himself. I'm going to read a verse from Matthew 24 where Jesus warns the disciples and the church of trials and tribulations that are coming. And he says, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. We hear things and we see things. See that you are not alarmed. Do not be alarmed, but dig deep into your identity in Christ and play your part in forming this community of his, for he is the one who will enable you to stand. Let's pray. Father, your plans and purposes are magnificent. And what you have done throughout the ages, through your people, is remarkable. We take it for granted. We look back over thousands of years of you looking after your people, of shepherding them, and we, we take where we are today for granted. But actually, you bringing the church to birth, you took the death of your own son, Jesus Christ, and the battle of, against sin and hell, which we sung of earlier, It came at great cost to yourself. And it hasn't happened automatically. It has not happened accidentally. It has, has not happened because there's some arrow of progress which is driving our civilization forward. It has happened because of your grace and your mercy upon us. And Lord, as you have formed us as a body, as your people, and formed many like us throughout this borough, throughout where we live, we pray that you would inhabit us by your Spirit, that we would receive you, Holy Spirit, afresh again, individually but corporately as your church, and that we would receive power from on high to live what we have read this morning, to be thick-skinned in love and to be secure in who you have made us to be, knowing that you are our judge, and yet judgment has already happened, and we are justified by you, before you, by grace, and welcomed into your family to walk in righteousness, peace, and joy, now and forevermore. We thank you that there is no grave which can hold our bodies down, for we shall rise again as Christ has the first fruits of the resurrection. That is the hope to which we look forward to. So help us to take up our cross and to walk that journey with good heart and cheerfulness and love, demonstrating to a very fractured world that God is at work and healing that which separates us. We throw ourselves upon you for this, because we cannot do it ourselves. It does not lie in our earthly nature. Do it, we pray. Amen. Amen. May God bless you this week to go and do that in the world, in the challenging world in which we live. There is, I believe, a Zoom virtual coffee service after today, after now, so... Do participate in that as you wish and as you feel free able to. And uh, keep praying that we will be able to gather together as that body to give God praise with one voice, our brothers and sisters together. God bless you. Amen. Amen.